This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Don't you tell me to smile, it's the Hot Forward Podcast. You all thought I was going to burst into rap then, but I will save you your ears and I will save my dignity because I'm the hippopotamus. My lyrics are bottomless. <sighs> Maybe not. Um, how, how are you all? So today on the Hot Four podcast, we're chatting about contract brewing with the benevolent dictator of the Yeasty Boys, Stu McKinley. Um, really excited about this episode. I had a great interview with Stu down at the brewery St. Mars of the Desert in Sheffield. Um, but before we dive into today's episode, some really exciting news. Because last week, you might recall that I was off to Ciba Beer X. And you might remember that I said that if we won an award... Um, for the beer that I brewed whilst I was at the Sheffield Brewery Company that um, Marv could share in that glory with me. But if we lost, then it would be his problem. And then this happened. Do you want to, do you want to explain, Marv, what's just happened? Why are you so happy? <laughs> we literally... Just, why are you literally, like, dancing off <laughs> the... We literally that... just won bottle and can British dark beers, 4.5 to 6.4 of the UK. Right, so you won that in gold? But we what, won gold. But what else happened? Um, <laughs> we also won silver for the overall beer of the UK. So you won the second best in beer in small pack in the yep. UK. That's, yep. a, that's, that's, that's what that's happened. No small, that's, that's, that's literally a, what happened. That's no small feat. I'm absolutely stunned. Seriously, I'm stunned. And now we're on the train back. So yeah, massive congratulations to the guys at the Sheffield Brewery Company. Um, big up to Marv who took on my role um, as the brewer there. So uh, really, really pleased for him um, to be able to go up there and accept that award. And if I'm honest, a small pat on the back to me for actually physically brewing that beer that won that award. So um, yeah, I'm pretty chuffed with that. It was a great week last week um, going to Beer X. And as I said earlier, meeting up with Stu McKinley from Yeasty Boys. Now, I was interested to chat to Stu on the podcast for two reasons. One was about mental health, uh, which unfortunately we didn't get around to this time because we were were quite short on time. Um, But the other was about contract brewing. And um, I'm going to tell a little story, actually, because this is how the Hot Forward podcast and Hot Forward as a business came about. Um, So I ran a brand called Emmanuel's which was my own personal brand of beers um, which I did out of the Sheffield Brewery Company and um, around this time last year maybe a little bit before I started to think about taking that independent and my business mentor said to me 
um, well, Nick, you know, you don't have the money to start a brewery of your own, which I don't. Um, so you need to look at other ways you can do that. Now, I'd been working with the Sheffield Brewery Company to do that, um, but it didn't quite feel like it was working out. Obviously, they wanted to grow and capacity was very limited. So I looked into contract brewing and the ins and outs of what would it take for um, me as an entrepreneur to um, work on my brand um, and the marketing and the sales, which is the thing that I do best, and have someone else brew the beer for me and partner with somebody who, I mean, I like to think I'm a good brewer, but I know there are brewers out there who are much better brewers than I am. Um, so I, I start to look into contracting with various different people and the ins and outs of it. So I knew that Yeasty Boys physically don't own the stainless steel um, or a building but nonetheless they work with other breweries to produce their beers and um, Stu was spearheading and still is spearheading the Yeasty Boys um, brand and brewery so I, I reached out to Stu to ask him all about it and as he was telling me his backstory I was like man that's really amazing so um, when I sat down to do all the figures for me personally it didn't really stack up so my business mentor said this doesn't work I could see it didn't work so I put Emmanuel's on hiatus um, while I figured out what to do next um, and I must confess there is a, a part of me as a brewer that would want to brew the beers myself so I was a little bit like well I don't know what to do I'm just going to part that for a bit and then out of that I was like well I have all these skills of being able to run businesses um being able to brew beer and knowing about running a brewery and especially how to develop brands and um, do marketing and drive sales and and build something as an entrepreneur um so i was like well how can i bring all those elements into one thing and then hop forward came about you know i i, I sort of thought well i could i could help breweries get ahead in their beer businesses by helping them hop forward um so here we are today running a podcast helping you guys listening to this get ahead in your beer businesses and also cheek little plug for what i'm doing um available to consult with um on your brands and your brewery and your business and here to do design work wherever you need the gaps to be filled um coming back to yeasty boys um stew's got a super interesting story and um, if you're thinking of maybe having a haphazard route, maybe like I have or he has in getting into the beer industry, in getting your beers brewed, but not actually doing it yourself, um, I would highly advise that you listen to this episode, maybe even reach out to Stu or myself um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, um, just to find out more about it. So um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As ever, um, please subscribe to the Hot 4 podcast. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes, Podomatic, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you can leave a review. just helps get the word out there. And um, please follow us on social media at Hot 4 Beers. So we're going to let the beat drop with Stu McKinley from the Yeasty Boys. Well, I'm here with the one and only Stu McKinley from Yeasty Boys. Uh, how's it going, man? That's really good. Thank you very much for having me along. Thank you. Um, if there was ever a beer pun that deserves reverence and awe, I think it's definitely the Yeasty Boys. How, how did you come up with that? Uh, well, I was a home brewer and uh, I remember attending a beer festival once uh, with a lot of home brews and all my friends had like great names for their home brewery but 
I was just there with my beers called Stu McKinley's American Porter and kind of names like that. And uh, afterwards, I kind of like, you know, kicked myself because the beers were like, you know, received really great, you know, accolades from uh, lots of home brew- fellow home brewers and also some professional brewers that had come mm. along to the, uh, the event. And so the next few weeks, all I could think about was like, I need a name for my home brewery. Uh, and I was homebrewing one day and listening to music as I always did and uh, we're listening to Beastie Boys Hello Nasty and Beastie Boys came up as a joke name for my homebrewery and it just stuck. It's, it's, such, a, man, it's such a cool name. <laughs> um, I mean you've got quite an interesting backstory how the brewery started uh, from a conversation I remember we had a while ago. Uh, why don't you just tell our listeners the lowdown on how you started the brewery and what the original vision was? Wow, that's... Um I never know if I've told the truth in the past, so hopefully this is the same story. Uh, but essentially, uh, well, I've, I've always been into beer. It's kind of it runs deep in the sort of veins of my family, and uh, also uh, a couple of my friends, and especially Sam, who I started Yeasty Boys with. Uh, we were both really good, uh, really really into beer, and uh, and he went off and travelled the world, and I stayed in New Zealand. And the only time we ever communicated was over beer, um, pretty much. You know what was happening in beer in New Zealand, mm. and he was telling me. You know, cities in the world or towns in the world that he was visiting and the beers that he had tried. Uh, and when he came back, by the time he came back to New Zealand, I was um, I was a very prominent home brewer. I'd been involved in the uh, the New Zealand Brewers Guild at that stage. I'd been co-opted onto the board. Uh, I was the only non-professional brewer or owner of a brewery who was on the board at that stage. Um, essentially, I was just the guy who worked the hardest as a volunteer, I guess. And and I think people probably saw I had a vision for what beer could be in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. um, I was, you know, just got very involved in the community there. Uh, and then I had a friend who had a brewery who was only producing around 30% of the capacity in their brewery. Uh, and I was making, you know, some pretty nice home brew at that stage. And I asked if I could come and brew with him at his brewery and kick things off. And it's kind of like uh, grown ever since. So hobby business sort of turned turned crazy. I think that's what most brewers yeah, yeah. <laughs> find, isn't it? Uh, it was six years from the day that we started Yeasty Boys until I quit my day job as well. So all through that time I had a day job. Uh, and then Sam, my co-founder, he only went full-time with us 18 months ago as right. well. Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah. So, so what did you do? I worked in uh, metadata, which is sort of conversation stopper right. immediately. But wow. uh, I worked in the health sector with clinicians. Uh, really interesting job and, you know, just lots of fun. I got to travel a lot and uh, I was the only person in the country doing what I did independently. There mm. were people working for some software companies and things like that that did similar stuff, but I was the only person who was available to kind of you know independently do work. So um, the work was always lined up for me for years in advance. So uh, yeah. it was kind of a nice, you know, it was a nice, nice life. I knew I could take off a couple of months at any time if I ever wanted uh, and, you know, work would still be there for me. Uh, when my kids were born, we've got three boys, my wife and I, and uh, she's actually the designer in the business as well, so it's a real family oh, story. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I was actually doing a business plan for a bar, like a craft beer bar at that stage, uh, when my first son was born, 13 years ago. Uh, and then the second one was born and I decided to work one day a week so I could hang out with our two boys because they were, uh, the first one was less than a year old when the second one was born. So uh, yeah, we had, we ended up having three under three. Uh, wow, so mate. during so <laughs> respect, dur- yeah, and started a business at the same time. Yeah. Mate. Well, actually, I had two businesses because I had a homebrew business as well. But that's a that's another whole podcast, probably. Uh, yeah, homebrew business. Yeah, wow. I had a homebrew supply business. Yeah, so um, I was really into beer, you could say. Uh, but I also, as I say, you know, I was um, 
I was kind of trying to probably at a stage where I was figuring out what I wanted to do with the second half of my life. Um, mm. well, it's, hopefully it's a bit more than a second half, but uh, uh, you know, having that time off with family and young babies and, and not, not you know, having mm. to work quite so hard I think was really important in the sort of, you know, the, in my own mental journey to discovering that I wanted to do something more creative because I was really creative in my old day job but no one would ever see it. It was all kind of behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Um, so how, just touching on the whole family thing, how do you find that dynamic of running a business um, or, or back then starting one up and then having a family? Um, because I think a lot of um, brewers I come across, you know, they're, they're in their sort of 20s, early 30s, that, you know, they, they haven't got kids and stuff. But then I do meet brewers who have got families and stuff. And it's, it, it, as a business, it doesn't kind of lend itself to that kind of lifestyle, does it? Like, how do, how do you find that? Yeah, it's tough. It's, uh, I think it's really great in many aspects. So, you know, my wife doing the design and me mm. being the sort of uh, creative lead of the business. Uh, we have a lot of fun in what we do and it's like really exciting when we see our beers on shelves or, you know, see things written about them, uh, you know, uh, in books or magazines or anything like that. And our kids love that too. And it's really kind of nice to have uh, a business that they can see us, you know, when they come home and we're both working at home at the kitchen table, which we often are, they can see us both working there and yeah. towards a common goal and that's quite nice. And my wife and I, we work really well together, I think, uh, sort of, you know, sometimes we go toe-to-toe on certain things. <laughs> uh, when I say, oh, you know, I want you to choose, you know, the font, uh, the typeface that you use on this label and she's looking at me and thinking, he doesn't like this one. <laughs> you know, that's his way of saying he doesn't like it. Um, but no, in general, we work really well together, and I think we have we have a really common goal for the values of the business, mm. um, and you know, being very much about great beer first and foremost, um, being fun and irreverent, and really caring about the people who work for us. Yeah, um, and I think they're probably the kind of main tenants for you know who we are, and and just and the wider beer community, I think as well. Um, mm. We like we think that we're a, an important part of that. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you're super busy and you feel like you drift away from it because you don't sort of get out and about and see all the people or your family's just taken up all your time and you don't stay as late at festivals or you miss some festivals and your team gets bigger and other people attend stuff and things like that. But I always kind of feel at my happiest when I'm kind of like within this, you know, this thing community, which uh, I don't know if you read, Will Hawks wrote a really good thing about community last week and uh, which is well worth reading uh, Mm. on his blog. so, um, but you know, talking about that different difficult dynamic of calling us calling that community, community, but remembering that you know, as a brewer, the people are actually your customers first and foremost. Yeah, um, it was a yeah very interesting piece. But I still think of it as a community because I've got lots of friends in there. You know, it's uh, the first batch of beer we ever did. I would say I knew almost every single person who drank it, um, and I certainly knew all the bars very well that that purchased it. So uh, uh, it's. You know, sometimes I still feel like the business is that, even though our beer's in, you know, 2,000 Tesco's yeah. <laughs> country, yeah. So, why the decision to move to the UK after New Zealand? We, uh, I think, you know, like, as a hobby business in New Zealand, we went for six years and we probably almost backed ourselves into a hobby business corner. Uh, so, when we got to a point that we wanted to, you know, really take the business to another level and I wanted to make it my day job uh, I found it really difficult to see us continuing with the same philosophy that we had which was to 
use other people's breweries, contract brew, mm. uh, and make it something you know much more than it was, or significant enough to at least kind of you know make it my day job and you know some kind of return for for us all as shareholders. Uh, but we knew that we were onto something good, you know. We like we had a good brand and uh, we had good beers, and we we knew beer well, and we also kind of had a pretty good feeling that we, and I still do think now I have a really good feeling of what the future holds in beer, uh, and I think we've been pretty successful in that in regards to coming to the UK and knowing that the UK was a few years behind, and that packaging and can was really good, and small pack especially, you know, ninety percent of our product is in small pack, and mm. um, that's. A, big big thing in New Zealand uh, and then there was also like the personal thing I think of uh, the fact that we were being drawn back I was being drawn back to kind of my homeland because my parents were Scottish and uh, I've got a brother and sister who live here with teens and so it was sort of you know two sides to the equation so it was a restart of the business and uh, you know the second half of my life as I sort of mentioned earlier yeah it's quite a big thing actually to I mean it's, it's a big thing to start a business Anyway, particularly a, a brewery as a business, but then um, to to move to the other side of the world, that's 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 real commitment, you know. And it's a, it's having that kind of change in your life is a massive step. What what was it like taking that sort of leap of faith, as it were? I didn't feel scared at all. It was uh, it just kind of felt natural, and it felt like there was a great opportunity. And I saw only the positives in it. Mm. And if I'd known all the negatives, I probably wouldn't have done it. Right. <laughs> but uh, I think that's kind of like. My nature is this relentless optimism. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that I can't get down and think that the world, you know, the sky is falling. But uh, I think overall, I have this, yeah, this relentless optimism that things will track in the right direction if you keep kind of doing the right things. Yeah. Um, and surround yourself with people who will tell you when you're not. I think you know that's really important as well. So yeah, it wasn't that hard for me. It was probably you know really hard for uh, Fritha, my wife, and our three boys. Uh, especially because we came over here and we left a dog behind in New Zealand for a while and then right. we did bring her but then when we brought her over six months later she died and oh, yeah. you know so it was quite a traumatic time personally for us I guess in some respects yeah uh, but she loves it here and you know they're all well settled and when they're now at an age where like the friends they're making now are gonna be so influential in the next you know five to ten years yeah. that you know it'd be pretty hard to rip them out and head back to New Zealand yeah yeah sure so Yeasty Boys, for people that don't know, it's, it, it, it's a bit different to your, your quote-unquote normal kind of brewery, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can you explain how, how, how so? Yeah, well, um, I mean, our beers generally are a bit different as well. Our biggest selling beer is an Earl Grey, Earl Grey IPA, so, um, you know, that's a pretty unusual beer. Um, but, you know, most of all, I think the most important thing for most people is the fact that we don't own a brewery, so we don't own any stainless. We have owned some equipment at breweries uh, in the past, but, uh, yeah, we don't actually own yeah, a physical brewery or mm. fermenters or the building that it's housed in or anything like that. Right. So we brew in New Zealand, uh, in Australia, and then two breweries here, so four breweries uh, around the world. world at the moment. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and our head brewer actually... Who started with us last year lives, you know, four hours from the brewery. So <laughs> that's a bit of a commute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's all up. It's a sort of, you know, it's a sort of well-spread team, and uh, you know, it can be quite difficult. There's a lot of phone calls and emails, and right. Um, so do you all work remotely, on. or? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we have an office in London uh, yeah. that we share with the New Zealand Beer Collective, a distribution company, uh, and at any one time. 
you know, there could be up to four of us now in the office, but generally there might only be one or two of us in because we're right. all we're on the road a lot anyway, and yeah. you, know, um, you know, either selling beer or you know talking to breweries about doing collaborations with them, or you know, at festivals or trade shows and things like that. Mm. So um, yeah, so I mean, if we were going to have an office for ourselves, even though we have you know five staff basically based in or around London we only really need space for like you know two of them at a time in there yeah. or something yeah. so what's it like operating the brand within three territories because I mean um, what are the challenges that you face licensing that brand because you do that in Australia don't you yeah, yeah. What's, what, how, how does that work uh, well I, the key thing is like you know good good relationships solid relationships that existed before you know we started with uh, the New Zealand and the so we've got a new brewery in New Zealand that we've been dealing with for about 18 months brewing beer and they started off contract brewing our beer now they manage the whole brand in New Zealand mm. um, so essentially what we do in the UK uh, for both Australia and New Zealand is we you know we create the recipes here so all of our you know uh, new seasonals and everything come out of the UK now they're all brewed right. at Dark Revolution in Salisbury and uh, and then from there, you know, Fritha comes up with all the design work and I do all the words around it saying, you know, anything you see is hers, anything you read is me. Right. And now anything you taste is JK, our head brewer. Um, before that, it was me um, with all the recipes. And um, and there's always a bit of backwards and forwards with recipes when they're going to go down into New Zealand or Australia because uh, the team there, you know, they know our beers really well, but... Occasionally we'll use hops here that they can't get there or, or some kind of, you know, we've uh, done a beer just recently called White Palace, which has got passion fruit uh, puree and Pinot Gris in it. Mm. And they can't, in Australia, they can't access the passion fruit puree or anything similar that they think they can use in it. So now they're talking to the New Zealand brewery about whether or not they can get some from there because the New Zealand brewery have already brewed that beer. So, um, yeah, so there's all sorts of challenges. For JK, it's about trying to... You know, get the essence of the beer and tweak it in a way that uses the ingredients there. And if it's something that we, you know, is too important, like we've done a couple of beers with the Kvike uh, Norwegian farmhouse yeah, yeah, yeast, totally. and we can't get that down in New Zealand. So the only way we're going to do that is if we perhaps sometime go down and I take, you know, some yeast with me, or if we get some, you know, shipped in from a lab in America, or or send it from over here or something. Yeah. Gosh, wow, that sounds tricky. <laughs> So, with you contract brewing your beers, I mean, obviously, you, um, I think a lot of people know that you originally did it with BrewDog um, doing that. Like, do you think, why do you think there's a perception, for some anyway, surrounding contract brewing that it's somehow quote unquote lesser than owning bricks and mortar and stainless steel rather than kind of, you know, and brewing it yourself? So, you surely must come across that at points yeah, where yeah. you're trying to All sell beer and stuff. So. All the time. It's, uh, I mean, actually, it's never to people with. Well, it's very rarely to people that we're trying to sell to. It's right. generally from, you know, um, craft beer kind of geeks, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of which you know, I am one as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's uh, mostly it kind of comes from, I think, well, there are probably two kind of areas. There's one is uh, the idea of the, you know, artisanal values of craft beer. So mm. the idea that people are getting their hands dirty and, um, you know, it's a real hands-on kind of labour of love type job. Um, which obviously is in places like uh, the brewery we're sitting in right now, which is... And on that note, <laughs> the cuckoo clock has gone off. Yeah, like handmade cuckoo clock, I'm sure. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, for the people who are listening, uh, we're at the uh, brewery of St. Mars of the Desert. Yeah, uh, uh, some old friends of ours who were brewing in America. Uh, and it's a very small, yeah, hands-on brewery here. 
Um, but generally, you know, if you're picking up uh, beer from the supermarket, even if it's called craft beer, you know, it's in a fairly big brewery and it may not be automated, but they've automated, everyone automates as much as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah for sure. You know, uh, what, whatever they can afford because, you know, they don't want to do their backs in and, you know, or have all their staff's backs done in and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very hard work. Um, so, you know, you don't want to like individually place every can onto the conveyor belt. Um, yeah. Yeah, you need <laughs> One, <de> two, yeah. <laughs> three. <laughs> you need a depalletizer. So some of that kind of romance, I think, you know, we all like to think of people handpicking their grapes for the wine that we drink and things like that, and it doesn't always happen. Yeah. So, so we lose some of the romance, obviously. Uh, and then I think probably the more important point is there's this historical thing of people contract brewing who, you know, they just made cheap beer and put either a fancy label on it, but probably not even a fancy label. You know, um, it might have been referencing a famous, you know, a heavy metal band or something. Yeah. Not to point any fingers, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, I think there's an idea that there's, you know, some people who just think if we put a label on something that is known to some people, um, then, you know, they kind of like drink repackaging, it. Kind of yeah. like the greatest hits almost for, yeah. the, for the band that yeah. oh, I've heard these and, songs. And they don't care what's in it. Yeah. But I think anyone who ever meets uh, Sam or I or, you know, anyone who's ever worked for Easty Boys understands that we're, you know, we're all about the beer. Mm. Probably to the detriment of our business at times because we probably cared more about the beer than, than actually, you know, the business. Yeah. Um, and we've, you know, we're not naturally business people, neither Sam nor I. We're not, I wouldn't ever call ourselves entrepreneurs, at best accidental entrepreneurs. We just kind of loved beer so much that we kind of fell into something and sort of kept rolling until mm. we were, you know, Man, that's a bigger and bigger snowball. Yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, um, this week I had a, an email from someone saying, oh, could you possibly do an episode for the Hot Four podcast on contract brewing? And I said, oh, I'm going to talk to, to Stu from the Easty Boys, funnily enough, this week. Um, so, you know, there are people out there considering it, and, and I know that's how I got in touch with you originally, because I was looking to contract brew uh, Emmanuel's, which is my brewery and brand. Um, what should you consider when you're looking for a brewery to partner with uh, to contract brew your beers? What kind of consideration should you be making? Uh, quality, I think it's number one. You know, because without a great product, you, you know, you, you're in a market that's just going to get tougher and tougher in that regard. Mm. So if your beer's not good enough, um, doesn't matter how good your branding is, you're really going to struggle in the future. I think your branding's really, really important still. It always will be, uh, but it's going to become, you know, more and more so that people just don't put up with bad beer, yeah. whereas I think they have in the past because it was interesting. Mm. Now it has to be really good. Um, I think it helps a lot when the brewery, you know, and, and the quality will probably talk to this a little bit, but the, the whole kind of philosophy of the brewery that you work with is really important as well. So we've worked with a few around the world now uh, in collaborations or in the longer term partnerships. And I think, you know, the way they treat their staff and the way they think about the sustainability of their business and the choices they make around the kind of packaging they use and mm. things like that are really important. Uh, and that becomes more and more important again in the future, I think, for consumers. Um, and that's at the heart of what we do, you know, the, the people are very important. And if you don't care about, you know, the environment and the sustainability of the people in your business longer term, then, you know, again, the business is not going to yeah. um, go very far. Or it probably will, you know, I probably <laughs> make all the wrong decisions <laughs> business-wise. Uh, and, and let my heart sort of uh, say too much about lots of the things that we do. Mm. Um, 
but I think they would be the, the key things. Uh, and then I guess the, another thing is that you know it's really hard to make money from brewing, let alone contract brewing. So you've got to really, really love what you do and know what it is that you're good in a business with. So if you're a brewer, then starting a contract brewing might not be the best thing for you because you have to deal with other brewers probably. Yeah, um, and you want to you brew know, the beer. So even if they let you into the brewery to brew the beer, you know, JKA had brews in, in uh, Dark Revolution all the time and you know, there's still things that have to happen when he's not there because he lives far away. So um, starting a contract brewery probably wouldn't be as good a thing for him because, you know, he's going to be thinking too much about that. Mm. Um, whereas for me, looking at uh, overseeing the business and letting him take care of the brewing side of things, you know, is a lot better. And, you know, when you start up a contract brewing business, you're pretty much doing everything yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, besides the brewing, which you're paying someone else to do. Mm. Um, so when you're approaching people, like let's say there's someone out there listening to this right now, it's kind of like, I really want to, I've got this great brand, I really want to make beer, but I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost, you know. Um, and therefore, you know, they're, they're doing their research. You think, yeah, contract brewing is probably the way forward. Like, how, how do they kickstart those conversations with your brew dogs or your beaver towns or whoever it is that might have that kind of capacity and infrastructure to do that? Like, do, do you just literally send an email? Hi, it's Jeff here. You know, can I come? Con- can we contract brew? Or yeah, like, how, what do you do? How yeah, do you? you can, yeah, I mean, you, there's a few ways. I guess there's um. Uh, there's a there's a, like an online system. I can't even remember what they're called. Um, where you can like go and log in. And oh, look, brew broker. Brew broker, yeah. 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 Uh, and you can like look for breweries there. So if you know nothing at all, uh, I, I mean, I think the best way to do it is the way I've done it, which was like to get involved in the business and volunteer thousands of hours of free time. Yeah. Uh, and find out all those connections that way. Obviously, that takes quite a lot of time. Mm. Uh, to sidestep that one a little bit, you know, I'm sure that. If you pitch a really interesting idea to someone, they may be interested. There'll be some breweries who are just not interested in contract brewing at all, and then there'll be others that that are interested. Um, The difficulty is is that the market is so buoyant at the moment with people wanting a lot of great beer that uh, if a brewery has a lot of capacity, you have to wonder why. Mm. Um, Some breweries are set up to contract brew, so you know that's probably a reason why they have some. Um, but the ones that are not, if they've got free capacity, then you probably want to employ a head brewer or, or a consultant who's going to, you know, oversee quality for you if you can't do it yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot for many brewers out there producing uh, beer at the moment to be making different beers every time, so they've got a better chance of being on draft lines um, because you know bars are heavily rotating different beers all the time. Now, obviously, Yeasty Boys is quite driven by having a core range of beers. Um, how, how much scope do you perceive there is in the market for brewers looking to develop a consistent core range offering? And how difficult is it to be banging that same drum again and again, selling those same beers over and over? It's a funny question, because when we started in New Zealand, we started with this philosophy at the time, there were no kind of, we weren't seeing a lot of seasonal change or mm. you know variability in styles and things. From breweries, everyone had their sort of dark beer, their amber beer, and their pale beer, uh, and we started with a specific idea of never brewing the same beer, uh, which, in general, lasted for a couple of years. Although we did repeat uh, a beer during that time, Pot Kettle Black, our Porter, which was our yeah. very first beer. Um, but when we came to the UK, because we had learnt all the lessons from New Zealand, we wanted to come here with kind of more, a more professional approach and output. So we started with three beers. We added a fourth about 18 months later and then we added a fifth uh, about another sort of 18 months after that. 
uh, and it was really interesting, you know, the first year or two, there was like, you know, so much buzz and excitement in the sort of craft beer crowd amongst our beers, you know, that the fact that we were bringing them over first and then that we were brewing them here. And, mm. and then um, all of a sudden people were just sort of, you know, when's your next beer? When is, when is a seasonal beer coming out? When's something new coming out? <laughs> you get all those questions. But at that stage we were, you know, brewing and growing really nicely based on these core beers and we kind of like realised we had made the right decision in that yeah. regard. Even though it's really easy to look at, you know, other brewers, brewers who are, you know, people we know in the market or friends of ours or anything who are doing lots of other stuff all the time and it looks really exciting and I could, you know, feel my heartstrings pulling at me saying let's make some more interesting beers. But I had so much on my plate as, you know, uh, uh, the one of the one and a half employees that we had in, in the UK. <laughs> At that time, uh, you know, with all of the stuff around HMRC compliance and, you know, setting up a business and, and setting up a family in a country where I was a British citizen, but there was no record of me ever having lived here or anything. Mm. So, um, you know, those kind of things are, are really difficult. You spend a lot of time just kind of battling your way through the compliance of, of the world, not just your business. Yeah. So um, I think we're going to, you know, you're going to see a lot more of seasonal stuff. That was why we employed JK, our head brewer. Um, you know, he's come in and he's playing around with different yeasts and he's brewing, you know, we've got at least a seasonal every month. Last year, oh, he's been with us 10 months, he's done about 22 collaborations during right. that time. So um, he's he's doing the stuff that, you know, I used to do when we started, but now I've got to run a business. Uh, and I've realised that we could have employed a head brewer or a CEO and I'm better to be the face in the front of the business and, and think about the long term, you know, uh, way that the business moves and grows and he's so much better at brewing than me yeah just like you know we're not even on the same planet in that regard yeah uh so i think there's a huge opportunity for us to grow that and in, in a couple of different ways of you know kind of fairly normal beers in the seasonal respect but then also we have a lot of ideas around um kind of wild and barrel aged beers um not necessarily wild and barrel aged together but you know as two distinct things mm. Uh, so, you know, potentially almost three, you know, spheres of Yeasty Boys, one being the core range, which always be our big volume, um, one being the kind of the normal seasonals and specials, which are, you know, generally approachable and very drinkable and exciting and interesting, and then the other ones which are, you know, like for the very kind of uh, top-end beer geek or um, yeah. to take just very special occasions and things like that. Mm. Um, and a lot of other breweries do that really well, you know, Thornbridge as a classic example of breweries who, um, you know, 99% of their consumers would have ever tried any of their, you know, wild barrel-aged beers, which are, you know, some of the best in the world. Mm. Uh, and I think, yeah, we can we can do that as well. And that's the sort of longer-term goal, certainly, is, is the way, it's the way we're building our team and, uh, yeah. and the kind of project that we're running, I guess. Cool. So what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of contract brewing? Disadvantages definitely are, um, you know, not having full control over everything. But I always say to people, you never do anyway if you have staff. You know, like you know, as soon as you employ your first staff member, you never have full control. <laughs> yeah. You have to trust people with certain things, um, and you know, you're always gonna you're gonna run that risk in some way. Obviously, the biggest advantage is that uh, we haven't had to spend five million pounds on the brewery that we're brewing in. Someone else has done that for us, and mm. we're essentially renting it off them when we contract brew. Yeah. Um, so that that's the yeah probably the 
you know, the two two main things. Yeah. I don't have five million pounds at the yeah. moment, and I think we'd probably struggle to find the investors. You know, mm. our name's a little bit too quirky, and um, some of our beer ideas are a bit too quirky. So oh, that's a shame. Yeah. I love your beers. Yeah, um, oh, we might better raise a million pounds, but five million yes. could be a bit tougher. Yeah. How, how do you then ensure quality um, remains consistent, especially when you're moving between brewery to brewery? And especially before you got your brewer on board to oversee that. Yeah. Um, if, if it's literally just like when it was just you overseeing that aspect of it, like how, how did you make sure that the, the quality did remain consistent? Taste the beer a lot, which is you know, really important. Uh, we were lucky brewing with Brewdog, um, you know, who have absolutely fantastic quality processes yeah. and have spent you know, millions and millions of pounds on uh, the equipment and the people that they have working with them. Uh, every beer that we were, you know, um, getting packaged was being taste tested by, you know, dozens of their staff. So uh, right through the process, so they would pick up stuff. I mean, I remember vividly the very first batch of digital that we brewed here in the UK. They contacted me and said that there was a bit of a problem with it, and they wanted to send it to me before they packaged it. So they sent me down some like, you know, bottles of flat beer <laughs> that hadn't been filtered or, you know, centrifuged or um, carbonated or anything to get me to taste it because it had failed their test and they said, you know, it, it scored low enough for them to not release it if it was their own beer. Mm. Uh, and I kind of butt, cle- butt, butt, butt clenched together and sort of <laughs> drunk it. Uh, it arrived on like a Friday and I remember I had some on a Friday and I thought, this is all right. And then I had it on the Saturday. Thought, yes, this is all right. And then the Sunday, this is all right. Because they said get back by Monday because that's when we'll need to yep. make a decision. Um, and... I thought about taking it to other people to give them and everything, and then I thought, this is, yeah, it's my baby. Yep. I know this beer, and I know that's all right. And I said, my gut feeling was that they didn't know New Zealand hops as well as I did. They know Nelson Sovin because they mm-hmm. use a lot of it, but yep. uh, there were some other New Zealand hops in there that I just thought had like an earthy characteristic that they were picking as a fault, you know, a sulfur right, compound see. fault. Mm. Uh, and I said, go ahead and package it. And so they carbonated it up and packaged it, and then I got a call saying, Holy shit, the beer's tasting really good. Yeah. yeah, we didn't pick that at all. You know, we'd never thought it was going to come through like that. Yeah, I mean, it's genuinely a good beer. It's a good, it's, I, I love that beer. Yeah, so that, yeah. And, and that beer has just got better and better with JK on board. So, mm. um, yeah, it's been very hard work. Moving to a new brewery, West Berkshire, who we've moved to, obviously, um, you know, they were, they were a more traditional brewery. They built a really modern brew house, and they're still coming to grips with learning how that all works and, you know, canning and... Yep. Things you know, they were a cask brewery, very, very cask-led brewery with with a you know single product that was producing the vast majority of their beer. Um, so it's been a learning process for them. We've had JK on board, which has probably helped a lot, um, and he's really dialed that beer in. Especially, it's the one that I'm kind of most proud of. You yeah. know, the work he's done on. It's not my favourite release that he's done since he's been here, but it's the the beer that he's turned from my beer into his own. I think yeah. in a in a really really good way. Uh, and the most recent batches of that around are just yeah, absolutely superb. Mm. Really, really pale and you know nice and dry, not too bitter. That you know really super fruity, but with a really dry finish. And JK and I both have a similar philosophy around. Yeah. It's a really well balanced beer, I think. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's when, when I go to Tesco because obviously it's it's, it's there. Um, you know, it's it's one of the go-to beers that I'll buy. And it's uh, my, my wife's not really that into hoppy beers, but you know she, she'll happily drink. Um, that beer, and I, I think yes, yeah, get, getting that balance of of flavour, it's it's really it's really difficult um, get getting those flavours right. It is, yeah, yeah. When um, when you 
taste breweries who just consistently make beer as good as you know I think our best batches. Just like so annoying, you think. Yeah. <laughs> How can they be that good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but why do you think more people don't take the route of building a brand first and contracting out their recipes? And I mean, because obviously they're mitigating the risk of starting a brewery and spending a hell, hell of a lot of money. Why do you think people, more people don't do that? I think uh, lots of people kind of like feel like that. You know, that craft element is really important. Mm. And as I say, you know, like in the end you're going to have to employ staff and you know you're going to be paying someone one way or another to be um, you know brewing your beer if you're going to be successful unless your version of success is that you just run your own brewery and you know sell it all out of the sort of roller door brewery that you're in and then then you could probably run a brewery on your own mm. um, but other than that uh, yeah I think uh, yeah there's that's just I think a lot of a lot of people have the idea that you know you have to own your home and you have to own your brewery uh, it's it's because a lot of people probably come from like a home brewing back, background who start off um, brewing or they've come from another brewery where perhaps they didn't enjoy the work that they had there and or the way that the staff were treated or something like that and they find themselves in a position where they think I want to build everything from the ground up and kind of do it my way mm. um, and then other people I don't know it's, it's just important for them you know in their heart, they feel like the most important thing is starting the brewery by, you know, laying some drains and yeah. pouring a floor and putting some fermenters on top in the brew house and, you know, doing it that way. Mm. Um, they, they just come from a, a different sort of aspect. That was always in my mind of what I wanted to do, and it still often is, you know. I walk into a brewery, and nine times out of ten, I kind of think, I wish I had a brewery. Yeah. But then all the other times I'm away from breweries, which is more often than not, I'm thinking, I'm glad I haven't got a brewery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, um, I remember talking to um, the brewery manager of Kenham Island Brewery once when I first got into it. And I said to him, oh, I've heard um, breweries 90% cleaning and 10% paperwork. And he just went, mate, you're obviously not doing enough paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, um, that's, that's reality. It's just paperwork and a whole bunch of cleaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's far less romantic. And I'm sure winemaking is as well, but you know, they have such great photos of vineyards that people think oh, I want to start a winery and when they think of that it's you know I want to grow some grapes and yeah. have a nice sunset view. So what, what one piece of advice would you leave somebody who's considering contract brewing their brand and their beers and looking to adapt to some model to Yeasty Boys? Sleepless nights are going to be a big thing unless you're like me I sleep really well I can like lie under this table now and go for a sleep but everyone else in our business has sleepless nights. Um, you know whether that's worrying about the beer and the brewery or the financials or you know the future of what's going on or the fact that you know I'm my wife lying at home thinking oh, I haven't seen Stu for three days. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's that's probably the thing. Be ready for that because it's it happens to everyone. No mm. matter how look how good it looks from the outside, it's always you know tireless hard work behind the scenes. Cool. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today. Um, where can people find out more about Yeasty Boys? Uh, you can engage with um, Camilla, who looks after our social media now. I just gave it up after 10 years. Wow. Uh, online. There's a milestone. Yeah, yeah. And she's on, uh, on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And, you know, you can go down to Tesco and buy our beer. You can go to Waitrose, Majestic Wines and buy our beer, which is always a good start. And um, hopefully you'll start to see our beer around on tap more this year but that's that's a hard thing to do so we'll see what we can do to, to make it happen brilliant well Stu McKinley the benevolent dictator of Yeasty Boys thank you
My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and visit our website hotforward.beer for more articles, insights and a range of services aimed at helping you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Until next time, cheers. Right, you get three pints of uh, litter bags. Uh, we, 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 we.